Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Next week, uh, Ryan Pfeiffer, it's going to be awesome. Uh, feeding of the 5,000. I've been looking back into that miracle and just thinking, it's pretty incredible. What can we learn? So this morning, we are in our last morning together in the book of Philippians. And uh, this morning, I have to warn you, we are going to drink from the fire hose. Yeah, we're going to cover seven big ideas. Bam, bam, bam. So it's rapid fire. We're going to spend about four and a half minutes on each idea. You know, so I'm expecting you to sit up. By the way, uh, sometimes pastors ask me, so what do you think of when you teach? And I, um, I said, well, quite frankly, I think most preacher teachers are boring. Um, you know, and I don't put myself above that, but the reason we can be boring is because we often are aiming at your chest or your stomach when we talk. And, and when you were in school, it was like, I already know this. Why are they saying it this way? You know, the, and so I tell pastors, they said, what do you aim at? I said, I aim about two inches above everybody's head so that they have to sit up and listen. And they're going to actually miss some things. And, some, and then I put some little secret spots in there that only the people that have watched Monty Python will, will, <laughs> will get the joke. Only certain people will get that, you know. So, you know, because the Word of God is amazing. It's rich. It's thick. It's esoteric. So um, we're going to cover a lot this morning, but the reason I'm excited about this last one, this series we've been doing on courageous living, is if you were the Apostle Paul, you've walked with the resurrected Jesus for 30 years. You've been persecuted by People, you've almost died several times on behalf of Jesus. Jesus has shown up on the road to Damascus. He's shown up in your room uh, in Corinth. You've been taken to the third heaven. You know a lot. This is big. And now it's the end of your life. You're about to be martyred for Jesus. And you have one last word to say. And it's at the end of the book of Philippians. What do you say? You know, you moms, when your kids are going off to school and you say, by the way, don't forget, what is that important thing that you're going to tell them? And that's what Paul is doing here. Now, I've called it Seven Secrets, and I want you to know the secret behind the secrets. There's a word that's used in verse 12 of chapter 4 where Paul says regarding contentment, I have learned the secret. He actually uses that term there, memumai, and it's a term that's used for the initiation into a secret religion. The secret religions of the day would use this term, and Paul borrows this term and says, I have learned a secret about contentment. So, as a presenter, I've taken the liberty to apply that word to all seven of the things we're going to discover this morning. And I confess, I 
Paul doesn't use it for all seven. He just uses it for the last one. And the reason there are seven, I didn't make it up because it's a perfect number. Paul switches gears at the end of this book and he puts it into high gear. We're on the Autobahn. We have been going 120 kilometers per hour and now he switches and now we're going 200 kilometers per hour. Wow, we're really moving. And he switches the tense to the imperative tense seven times. So these are now commands, last-minute commands to the kids as they go off to life. And so here we are going to stand on our tippy toes and learn from the Apostle Paul. So Father, come be with us, Holy Spirit, percolate our minds and hearts uh, to hear what you have to say and change us from the inside out in Jesus' name. Amen. Secret number one, don't settle. Press on. Keep your eye on the prize. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make it clear. Only let us live up to the standard which we have already obtained. Jumping down to verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Christ Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform your lowly, dying, broken bodies. I added that. <laughs> so that they will be like his glorious body. Yay, yes. So this idea of pressing on is tied to what we studied last week. Do you remember? And Paul's continuing on that idea. If you come back to verse 12, he said, I want to know Christ. Verse 10 and verse 12, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. So Paul is on his toes. He's anticipating what God has for him after 30 years of walking with Jesus. It's a sign of maturity that we haven't arrived and that we've only just begun. Those of you that have read Narnia and you've read The Last Battle, the last book of the series, further up, further in, further up, further in, the deeper they go into heaven, they realize there's more. There's more. And so it's really easy for me to push pause on your remote control and ask you, is that your form of Christianity? This idea of discovery, this idea of I don't know. We've been exposed to a lot of Christianity that is quite frankly smug. I do know. And that's not right. And that is right. We think that Christianity is being an umpire behind the plate. 
watching a lot of baseball lately. <laughs> it's not being an umpire behind the plate. It's being on the field as a player. You get to play in this game, and Paul understands it. There's no sitting back. There's no cruising. And he says, we must forget. Love that word. Somehow, you know, some of you know, I have a background in theology and psychology, and one of the problems in psychology is living constantly remembering And sometimes the therapist is helping us to remember and dig up and is more and more painful as we go go backwards. And I'm not uh, belittling that, but just to say there's something besides remembering, and it's forgetting. Whoa! How many things in your life would you like to forget? So Paul forgets the past. He forgets the frustrations, he forgets the failures, and he forgets the achievements. Because those things can cause you to get stuck. Mark, did you just say that? I absolutely did just say that. It's amazing. Failures and successes of the past can cause you to get stuck and begin to say that's what it's all about as opposed to saying, I want more. I want more. What more can I learn? Someone who's in scholarship, someone who's in science, someone who's in music, someone who's in sports understands this. I want more. I can't just sit back on the last discovery, the last thing that I knew. Some of you that are rock, jazz fans, you'll know that Ginger Baker died today. And the irony is I was just listening to a drum solo by him last night. Haven't listened to him for 20 years. We used to cover a lot of the songs that Cream and Blind Faith uh, presented. And I thought, what are the chances? I just listened to him. You know, drum solos are hard to listen to. I eventually could tell as we were driving along that I needed to move on to the next song as Jan was putting up with my, uh, my little thing going on. But that's who you really are. You're not done. Hebrews says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin. Everything that hinders and the sin that can so easily entangle us and let us run with perseverance, strain, press forward. So the question is, are you there? Where are you at in this regard? Number two, find a living example and then be one. Verse 17, chapter three. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Verse 9 of chapter 4, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. We now have the advantage, now that we have YouTube, 
you have the advantage of any lick you want to learn on the guitar, anything you want to learn in cooking, anything you want to learn in construction, you not only have a manual, but you can actually see someone. So this is how I do this, and you'll watch. And, 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 and they do it oftentimes for free because they're natural-born teachers, mentors. What if you had that in your Christian life? I remember coming up to Chuck Smith at dinner, and I'm a brand-new Christian. I'm 18 or 19 years old, and I... In, in a very naive way, say to him, that was a great Bible study. You cannot have learned that all on your own. What commentaries do you use? I know, isn't that just audacious? And Chuck was just so gracious to me in his answer. But he did tell me a couple of commentaries. When you can... Watch someone, you learn a lot faster than if you read someone. Watching is amazing. So what if you could watch someone have a Bible study? If you could watch someone pray? If you could watch someone witness? If you could watch someone lead a Bible study? If you could watch and get behind the curtain and see how, would that help you a little bit? There's something wrong in churchianity where we make it all appear to be a mystery. Oh, no, no, it's all the anointing. You know, and so you just think, well, I must not have an anointed marriage. I must not have an anointed business life, etc. So we want to get better. So here's what Paul is saying. Watch us. This is very much akin to what he says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2. Easy to remember, 2.2.2. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust them, trust these things to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Three generations. Beautiful. Christianity is always one step short of extinction. And the way we avoid extinction is passing it on to the next generation. Jesus did that with the disciples. And it seems like, Jesus, what you were thinking? Jesus is the son of God, and he passes the mission on to 12 knuckleheads. But if you do the math and you figure out, okay, what if that each of the 12 had 12, and many people do this that just love numbers, and, and they talk to us about how the whole entire 8 billion people in the world would be evangelized in this amount of time. Well, how about you and me? Who's in front of you that you can say, wow, I love what they do here. I'm going to ask them, can I follow you around? I love what they do in this area. I'm going to ask that person, can I be with you? Let's just meet once a month. Let's just talk. We'll do it over coffee. Just, just give me 15, 30 minutes of your time. Once a month. Can we do that? Then look behind you and grab some people and say, hey, you want to come along? I know it, it feels uh, proud to, to reach backwards and say, 
I'm amazing. You want to watch me? <laughs> but there's a different way to do that. A friend of mine, uh, Richard, he wrote a book about uh, caring and visiting the sick. Uh, he's been a chaplain for 15 years over uh, at the hospital in Vista, San Marcos, Oceanside, Tri-City. And I said, you know what? You are so knowledgeable in this area. Would you teach a class on how to visit the sick? It's probably the area that Christians are the most ignorant of. You know, we walk into the room and we don't know what to do and the only model I've seen is a preacher and the preacher is always preaching. So I walk in and they're a captive audience in the hospital and what do I do? You know, God must have a plan for your life. Or, what sin were you involved in when this accident happened? Or, you know, now that you're sick, maybe God is just trying to teach you to be still. And Because we don't know anything but to preach. So, are there some other things that I could do when I am a friend of Job's? Yeah. Just visit, be quiet. Just love, visit, be quiet. Really? really. But Richard has all kinds of other key tools. So it's a great example of how we can look ahead of us and look behind us. Elijah did it to Elisha. Moses did it for Joshua. Naomi did it for Ruth. Jesus did it for the disciples. Paul did it for Timothy. How about us? Number three, how am I doing? Fast? This is This is perhaps the hardest. Buckle up. Learn to love. All we need is love. We all know we should, we need to, we want to, but it's time to learn to love. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Their name is in the Bible <laughs> as failures of love. Can you imagine? You have this little spat going on in a local church, and Paul writes to to you and mentions your name, and your name now for 2,000 years is read by churches all over the world. By the way, these are two names in all the cool names we use today that are not being used yet (laughs) that you might choose for your daughters. Yodia and Syntica could not get it together. And we all know about it. But we've never had this problem, have we? The myth is that as I walk with Jesus, I'll have fewer and fewer problems. And we actually ask the question, when a problem happens in our lives, where did I go wrong? What? What did I do in not obeying the Lord that now I have a trial in my life as opposed to saying, oh, I must be in the will of God. I'm having a trial, right? So 
Stressors come in all forms, in all sizes. Jesus said, the rain falls on the just, that's the righteous, and the unrighteous. So we all have stressors, we all have problems along the way. It's what we do with them. And the premier problem of the world is people. (laughs) Did you know? I, I hear it all the time because of my line of work. Yeah, I mean, I love God, but I just can't stand people. And, and you know, the church is full of them. <laughs> and, you know, and they often use the word hypocrites. It's just, you know, I know them. You know, they're a realtor, they're, they're a banker, and I've seen them, at the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I just, I just, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. And I said, I know, you should come. <laughs> you would fit right in. <laughs> Yeah, we have people that rub us the wrong way. Don't, did you, do you have disagreeable people, irregular people in your life? It's just like everything, it's something about that person. Now, here's the problem with Christianity, particularly in America, particularly among us. We capitalize on truth. We build sermons, we build uh, everything around truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, truth, and the life. So out of truth, we merge, we emerge into being right. And then we meet people who don't share our truth. And we're not really good at discerning between big important truths and small truths. So we meet people that have a different view of of all kinds of things, of how we should do things in the church, outside the church, so forth and so on. So let's just pick two random people that come to my mind right now. Let's suppose we have two people, we have communion today, and we have two ushers that disagree on how the communion elements should be distributed. Should we go every other aisle, or should we have all of the communion trays go this way, and then in the back have them all go? And let's say they they take their disagreement to a larger group of people, and they're both right. It begins to be a thing of, we are right in the name of the Lord. This would make for a more worshipful service if you did it my way. Now, I choose a ludicrous example because I don't think any of you are invested in that one. (laughs) But now you just raise it up a notch. Should people who think this way be allowed into the church? People have had this experience. Should they be allowed into the church? And I dare not even touch the subject of politics. Because your view of politics is exactly Jesus' view in your mind. (laughs) So learn to love. Can, Can it be possible that we are actually supposed to love people who are and think differently? Exactly. Now we are getting somewhere. So the uniqueness 
of the believer is not that we have problems, but that we have God in the midst of our problems and that we are in the school of love. We're not only in the school of truth, we are in the school of love. And guess what practicum is in the school of love? Not loving people who have the identical chemistry as you. It's having people come into your life that are going to school you in how to love. So it's time. The mark of a Christian, Francis Schaeffer wrote this book, I remember when it came out in the 70s, that the mark of the Christian is not only truth or right, but the mark of the Christian, according to Scripture, is love. Jesus said, John 13, 35, all men will know that you are my disciples if you're darn right. (laughs) If, and it's a big if, the implication, the world won't know if we don't, if we love one another. Number four, Keep rejoicing in Jesus. Don't stop. Remember, Paul has used this word 16 times in this book. And he circles back around in verse 4 and says, Rejoice in the Lord when you feel like it. Always. And again, I'll say it. Rejoice. Tim Hansel uh, was a friend of mine. Uh, Ed Smith, who is the founder of this church, took me up to Monrovia once uh, to visit Tim. Tim had fallen. He was a uh, discipler par excellence who would take people uh, backpacking and and rock climbing. And uh, Tim Hansel was off on his own one time and fell. I don't remember what it was, 50 feet uh, down a cliff, landed on his back, broke his back. And when he came to he realized, I got to do something here. And so he walked out some five miles uh, with a broken back in several several places, needed surgery, and was on pain meds for much of the rest of his life. And he writes a book, You Got to Keep Dancing. And it's the message here about Paul. Uh, You got to keep rejoicing. Keep pressing in thinking about what's right about Jesus. It's not just being a happy person, but it's finding your joy and happiness in Jesus. So here's the question. Are you a thermometer or are you a thermostat? Think about it. A thermostat is always just telling us what the temperature in the room is. Is it a good day? Is it a bad day? Is it happy enough for you? Is it just, is it partly cloudy, partly sunny? You know, I I think that weathermen in San Diego should be fired. Like, so what is the point? If you live in the Midwest or the East Coast where weathermen are really needed, but you know, these people that say, well, you know, there's a chance we'll have cloudiness last beyond 11 o'clock to maybe 1130. (laughs) 
inland, not so much, but, you know, it's going to be somewhere between 74 and 76. You know, uh, you might want to take a little cover up because, it, you, you know, it's just like, whatever. This is not weather. But we oftentimes are just thermostats reflecting what the world's, but to be, actually, sorry, got it reversed. We are a thermometer, but to be a thermostat is for me to actually set the temperature for my own life. Okay, it's a bad day. Bills came in that that are beyond my funds. How am I going to do this? Who am I going to call? This raises my stress level. Uh, somebody's coming to town. I didn't plan on that. That raises my stress level. All these things. What am I going to do to be beyond a, a, a thermometer, to be a thermostat and bring my joy back into the Lord? Habakkuk 3.17 says, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Bad day? Bad day. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I firmly believe that Rabbi Paul, who had memorized much of the Torah, grabbed his emphasis on joy from Habakkuk. So Habakkuk is this guy that says... I don't know what God's thinking. He's allowing unrighteous people to judge righteous people. Cannot be the will. How could this even happen? It's a book of crying out to God of the injustices that are happening on Israel. And he ends the story by saying, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Number five, be gentle. Patient with others. Verse five, Let your, I just noticed that, just lines up, secret five and verse five. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. In religion, in spirituality, we, because of our pursuit of truth, oftentimes end up becoming Pharisees. And Paul knew that, he was a Pharisee, who would know the truth, judge people based on them not keeping up with him and his knowledge of the truth. But there was something that stood out about Jesus, the Son of God, who knew truth, who was truth, and that was that he was gentle with sinners. He was patient and gentle with the one guy that didn't need to be. He was patient and gentle with sinners. Don't you love that about them, him? It says in Matthew 12, 19, this won't be on the screen, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. And a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I love that about Jesus. So Jesus was not this, hey, listen to me. That that wasn't Jesus. And 
when someone had some brokenness in their lives. Jesus was not the guy, let me put you out of your misery. He was rather someone who was patient. And that's why we love him. Think of your own brokenness. It's part of your story. Blessed are those who mourn, right? This Jesus who comes to you, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. So you reach into the pockets of your spirituality and you got nothing. And Jesus says, blessed are you. We love this about Jesus. And now he's asking us to be the same way. This is an interesting word. There's no doubt. It's rarely used in scripture. And and Paul uses it here. It's this word that can be translated humble, gentle, uh, forbearing, bending over backwards for people uh, that are different, that are moving at a different spiritual pace than you. One of the stories, and by the way, it's because the Lord is near. That's why we should be forbearing. And most people, I and I originally always was convinced it's talking about the parousia, the coming of Christ. He's coming almost, he's going to be here any moment, so you, you need to be gentle. And I'm wondering more if he's saying the Lord's present. He's near. He's watching. And he knows how patient he's been with you, and now he's asking you, to be patient with the others. There is a God and it is not you. Position filled. And you can imagine if we don't have to judge people anymore. Keep up. Why aren't you changing? What is it, you know? If you, if you could just let God do that and you're there to love, provide a greenhouse for plants to grow at their own pace, their own time, and to be patient with the ones that are struggling. I've told the story of about a plant I had in college called, I named it, Praise Plant. And there was an article that came out while I was in college that if you, if you praise the Lord around plants, they'll grow faster. <laughs> Sounds good to me. So this little plant that had three leaves on it, I would come into my dormitory room and, uh, and say, Praise Plant, praise the Lord. And I, I would leave my room and turn to the plant and say it again. And it sat there. No more leaves, nothing. For an entire year. It, it had water. It had fertilizer. It had light, indirect light, and it was a shade plant. Praise plant just moving at its own pace. Now, I know we have horticulturists here that uh, you're going to give me some advice between services. God bless you. <laughs> Be gentle with me. <laughs> so one day I decided to help little praise plant out and I put it out into the morning sun just to get it a little more light and started doing that. It still didn't thrive until finally one day I put it out and I forgot about it. <laughs> it got direct sun all day long. 
And little praise plant began. First one leaf, then another. I know. And there were only three leaves. So first there were three, then there were two, and then there were one, and then there were stem. <laughs> praise plant. <laughs> we're all moving at a different pace. Talking to a friend recently who's not a believer, not interested in church at all. But he asked me, what, what would be something that I would discover if I would darken the door of your church? And I, would, I said, you know, that we would let you be. That you're, like I was, in a course of discovery and learning and observing and discovering at your pace. And we're a church that allows that to happen. Number six, control your internal life, your thinking, your emotions. Verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. The implication is every, anything that is not praiseworthy, that is not admirable, that is not lovely, that is not pure, that is not right or noble, why are you thinking about those things? And if you say to me, well, it's because I'm trying to be objective and to be a scientist and look at things, you know, the, the truth of the matter is we tend to focus on the negative. We tend to focus on what's wrong. If I emerge from here and I have 99 people come up to me and say, wonderful message, pastor, and one person says, you know what you should have said and what you left out, do you need to know what I will think about when I go home? <laughs> I will think about the one comment. It's the way we're made. If you have a cold sore in your mouth, your, your tongue does not explore the inside of your mouth to see what's right every day. <laughs> but the moment you have something that's wrong, your tongue will go directly to it and explore it all day long, <laughs> ad nauseum. So 19 million Americans, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, between the ages of 18 and 54, suffer from anxiety disorder. Now, these are the people that have gone to a therapist to figure out, and then if you add, well, how many struggle and gone to therapy regarding depression, a related disorder, now we have 40 million added to the 20 million, so 60 million, which is out of 300 million 
310 million Americans. That's a sizable part of who we are. And those are the only the people that have come out of hiding and sought professional help. But the rest of us battle depressive thoughts and anxious thoughts regularly. And we're trying to manage them. And here the Bible is actually helping us. It's saying that your thoughts are tyrannical bullies potentially. A bully in the playground picks on little kids. Your thoughts are bullies in your mental playground. This is good cognitive science. And, and where we spend our thinking loops back around and affects our thinking, which then affects our thinking and loops back around and affects our thinking. But Paul is suggesting, long before cognitive science, that your boss, yeah, that means you're not a victim of your thoughts. You are not a leaf blowing in the wind. I can't help it if the thoughts just come. You're not a leaf blowing in the wind that you and I, as difficult as it is at first, can take these things captive. It would be like you saying to me, I'm sorry, but I have to eat. Why do you have to eat? And this is what I'd say, because I was at a party last night with some amazing hors d'oeuvres and some amazing food. I, you know, when it's just there, I have to do it. I'm a victim of my wrist <laughs> and my eyes. And if you are my dietitian, you would say, you are not a victim. Moderation in all things. Mark. The same is true of exercise. Uh, the same is true with every nasty habit. So our thinking and how we think are habits. William James, the first psychologist in America, he was on to this, this, this great Harvard professor. He was on to this and realizing that many of his subjects created pathways in their mind that were just that, a pathway. When I was a kid, we used to cut through all these vacant lots. And you know, the vacant lots, they didn't have any city restrictions and they just grow weeds and there was no one coming around saying, you know, you got to cut these weeds, you know, fire hazard. It was just live and let live. And so we would cut through the lot and it would form a pathway. But we knew if we cut through another part of the lot, it would form a different pathway, and the previous pathway would grow back up with weeds and grass. And so it is in your mind. So when emotions move from being servants to us to being bullies, they dominate us, and we lose our freedom. So the emotions, emotion of fear, good thing. You're on a railroad track, you hear a train, thank God for fear. It moves you to get off the railroad track. But when now I begin to cognitively think about fears all the time, it's a bad thing. And I talked about this, I think, recently. It sounds recent to me anyway. And any other emotion that comes to me, they are to be my servants to enjoy to play their role, but not to become big bullies that dominate me. And so it is with anxiety. So the command that he gives us here is really quite clear, and it's global. Do not be 
anxious. And then he says, about anything. Now, you would push back at me if you were an astute student and say, really? Not anxious about anything? And I would agree with you. Anxiety got me through college. I would be reminded tomorrow is a final. Or tomorrow a paper is due. Anxiety. And I would cram, like any other college student. That, By the way, that's how you get through college. That's, it prepares you for life. To, 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 you know, get anything done. So anxiety has a role in your life, but it's, it's to be controlled. So what are we to do with our anxiety? And there's various anxieties that come our way. What are we to do with it? He says, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. This is so beautiful. What if we include Jesus into my thoughts. Lord, you know what I'm thinking. And it's just not anxiety. This could be anything. I'm thinking greed right now. I'm thinking lust right now. What if you bring Jesus into the moment? And so therefore, Jesus, rather than pretending we're separated, come in, help me. This is what I worried about. And the peace of God, verse 7, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus promises this in John 14, 24, and Paul had apparently experienced it. I mean, there he is in prison. You can't say to Paul, well, yeah, it's easy for you to say. You're about to be martyred. Easy for you to say. No, he can say it with all authority because he knows what he's talking about. And then, so that's the defense. So when the offense of life comes at you, Jesus is with you. Take Jesus into the emotions and thoughts. Now, here is the offense that you take to the team, to the field every day. What's noble, what's right, what's pure, what's lovely, what's admirable. Think on that. I know, this works. I use it in my own life all the time. You know me, I wake up and I say, oh my gosh, I'm alive. This is amazing. And I turn to Jan today and I say, you know what? My heart is pumping, my lungs are breathing, and my brain is operating, and I have not told them to do that yet. They did that without me. This planet is magical. And I begin to point out to myself the things that are right. And if you were to do an anatomy study of the brain and, and, and look at the neurotransmitters that are being released with your positive thinkings, you would realize that you're releasing happiness into your system. Uh, and that's just biological. But what about spiritually? Yeah. It's teaching us a new way to live. Very powerful. And then finally, number seven, enjoy the fruit of contentment. Verse 10 I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. This is always a, an interesting conversation on the subject of giving. You know, so this is a part of Paul's giving letter. Uh, indeed, you have been concerned, I admit that, and you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned, there's 
the insight. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. Sorry, my paraphrase. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. And here's the word. I have learned the secret, or I've been initiated into the truth of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. Sounds a little bit like a wedding vow. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Contentment. So what do we do with that? He's actually talking to one of the biggest things. The irony is he talked at the very beginning, point number one, is don't be content. Don't be content with where you are. More, more. More of Jesus. Let's discover more. So, but in the area of life, and this is particularly helpful for those of us that are movers and shakers and responsible and resourceful. Uh, there's certain things that you can push on something till you realize that's as far as that thing can push. Can you be content where you are? Can you be content? If you can't, get a bigger, faster car, bigger home, if you can't have more children, if you are not married or remarried, if you can't get a better job, if you can't surf a better wave, if you can't become a better pickleball player, You know, it's not saying don't try to achieve or don't try to do... It's not saying that. It's not saying be lazy. It's not Marx saying the opium of the people is religion because it just puts everybody... It's not saying that. Do your best with each thing, but when you hit that wall... You know, I hit a wall years ago when I was in junior high, and the wall was five, seven and a half. And I've tried. (laughs) You know. Can you be content? And oftentimes it seems like the Eastern philosophies are better at that than Westerners. But can you learn the art of contentment? Socrates, when he was asked, who is the wealthiest? His response was, he that is content with least is experiencing nature's wealth. So contentment is experiencing the wealth of nature in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. So here they are, folks. Let me put the seven on the screen. Yeah, this is me. Sorry about that. (laughs) Took a while to see how I could connect all of these letters, especially press on since it's two words. (laughs) So I was thinking, all of these things are Jesus. This is who Jesus was on the planet. Isn't it right? He's just always pressing on for more of the Father. He's, he's an example 
to his disciples, but he keeps looking to the Father. Love is premier. He's always modeling love. He, his joy is in the Father. His thinking, he controlled where his thoughts were going, and he learned contentment, particularly when he strived to not go to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, nevertheless, thy will be done. And here you are and I are, 21st century, ready to follow him. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the truths we have studied and learned this morning. And Lord, as we end this service with communion, we ask God that you would come and be with us. We pray this in your name, amen. As the ushers prepare to come forward, let me just remind you that this week is Yom Kippur, and for those, those of us that don't know about this, the highest of all the holy days of Israel, that it's, it's a day of reflection. Uh, th- there's no temple, there's no sacrifices anymore, so you can't give all of your sins to an animal, there's no one to intercede for you. So we as believers, we happen to know that uh, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain for you and me. But what we have in common is that we reflect on our sin. We reflect on all the if-onlys and what could have been and, and all of this. And in this moment of the celebration of communion, we give it all to Jesus. He becomes the Paschal Lamb. He becomes the scapegoat that takes away our sins. So as the elements are passed out to you, would you just use this as a time of reflection um, in remembrance of Yom Kippur and to say, Jesus, my reflection is, Jesus, I've been such an idiot. Can you forgive me? Will you stand with me? Such a rich time. You've uh, drank from the fire hose. And as we prepare to go, let me pray a blessing on every one of us since this is the week of Yom Kippur. Uh, let me give you the literal blessing of Aaron, the Aaronic benediction. I used to be able to say this in Hebrew, uh, but now not so much. So uh, it's in English. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Be gracious unto you. The Lord Yahweh turn his face toward you and give you peace. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. If you need prayer, come and get it. God bless you. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.